Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. As always, and I'm glad to be back, I'm Will Milam. Two weeks ago, we left off with the end of the Halloween season, and now we are uh, seemingly to mid-November, and we are now in good with the uh, coming Thanksgiving season, which will lead into the Christmas season, which is the most wonderful time of the year, so I hope everybody's been enjoying the festivities. Uh, as most people uh, who are listening to this live in Oklahoma, uh, you know that the weather again has turned sour. And as I record this on the evening of Sunday, November 13th, November 14th, there's scheduled to be, or there's forecasted to be a very, very bad, uh, ice storm. So if that does come to fruition, which it may, it may not, but we've had those in the last couple of years. So I'm also worried about it and taking precautions. I hope everybody stays safe. But as we know, what was promised would be going back today to the uh, Trail of Tears. Um, and so we are switching back from sad stories from uh, ghosts to sad stories to, uh, you know, uh, economic, political, social, geographical monstrosities. So if you remember from about, uh, it's probably six weeks ago now, was the last time that we actually talked about uh, the Trail of Tears. It was the end of the War of 1812. Uh, and um, Charles Hicks and Major Ridge are fighting there with General Jackson, and they have defeated the Red Sticks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and uh, Jackson made the Creeks cede back uh, the regular Creeks um, uh, as opposed to the Red Sticks, the, made the Creeks cede back their land after defeating the Red Sticks and kind of set, the, set in motion some uh, land controversies which would become very pertinent as uh, time would go on, as we will see further down the road. Uh, circling back now from the war to uh, the education and the uh, the growing of John Ridge, who's uh, obviously Major Ridge's son back in the area near New Echota. Uh John's Moravian teachers, if you remember, the school was run by Moravian missionaries, uh, would teach him that the enslaving of blacks and Indians was wrong because God made all men equal, uh, which would obviously have a major impact on John Ridge's thinking throughout the rest of his life. But by 1817, so we are now five years on or several years on down the road from the War of 1812, Major Ridge would send his children to a new school that was uh, for one of or a new school that was actually racially integrated. Um, this was uh, good, obviously, as uh, the children are being integrated into a more uh, multi-ethnic society. Uh, the Cherokee parents objected to the Moravians teaching the children about hellfire, obviously, as they are uh, trying to convert them to Christianity. John Ross uh, would prove a great help to the missionary education as he could read and speak English as well as Cherokee. Uh, and this was, he was one of the first major chiefs to be able to do so, to speak both very well. Charles Hicks, uh, of course, could speak and read both English and Cherokee, but uh, John Ross could do so at a native level at as both a native English speaker and a native Cherokee speaker. Uh, Charles Hicks, though, now having fully-fledged converted to Christianity, was also of assistance. Uh, major Ridge, though away, had become a major political power and uh, major political player, not only in Cherokee politics, but at this point in United States politics. And after the uh, after the land disputes at the end of the War of 1812, Major Ridge would go to Washington, D.C. to ask President Madison for the return of the land that Jackson took at the end of the war. And there's a long story of and there's a long history of federal officials of federal officials whining and dining the Cherokee chiefs in D.C. in an effort to come to more 
uh, more ameliorable terms for the United States, and this would be an ongoing problem. And we're not really sure to what extent Major Ridge played in this, but a lot. This was unfortunately the fate of a lot of the uh, a lot of the Cherokee negotiators. So Major Ridge, while in D.C., would negotiate with a commission that included General Jackson to get that land back. And General Jackson ended up bribing and just buying the land outright. And then Jackson later attempted to further bribe the chiefs into ceding land from the east uh, for land west of the Mississippi River. So it'd be like a trade where the Cherokees would give up and the other tribes would give up their land east of the uh, Mississippi River. So in the more uh, native lands and then take up east or take up west of the Mississippi River. Uh, This, of course, now and later would be pitched as a way to uh, permanently end the squabbles between the settlers and the Cherokee and the other tribes, uh, which will not turn out well for anyone, really. Um, and Major Ridge and Charles Hicks were enraged at this idea and rejected it. Uh, eventually, uh, Major Ridge and John Ross at this point were able to get some of the land returned to the Cherokees uh, to the enragement of General Jackson, and General Jackson would hold this over Major Ridge's head and the over the heads of the subsequent Cherokee chiefs for as long as Jackson's would live. But still, uh, federal land agents were touring Cherokee country and, be, and continuing to offer bribes in order to get the Cherokees to move west. And then, ironically, the Cherokees that had already settled in the west began skirmishing with the Cherokees that were moving west because obviously none of this was planned very well. And once you actually got west, there were further land squabbles to be going to be uh, to be settled, so there's a bunch of internecine fighting between the Western Cherokee and the Eastern Cherokee moving west, and then later on, the missionaries started the controversy as they began to make moral judgments about Cherokee culture, such as things like the Cherokee dances and also the ball games. Uh, they would call the ball games sinful, largely because this was seen as an excuse for men to drink fire water, meaning whiskey, and basically get rowdy. So the Cherokee also had their own version of Saturnalia, it looked like. The ball games and the dances were controversial in and of themselves, but of course, as we've already mentioned, the biggest uh, conflict between the missionaries and the Cherokee was that the missionary board uh, was vigorously opposed to slavery, which was integral and very normal in the Cherokee way of life and the economy, more like the economy rather than the way of life. Eventually, The American Board uh, of Commissioners for the Foreign Missions, who we have been calling the board or missionary board, just to put a name with what we've been calling it, uh, they opened the Foreign Mission School in Cornwall, Connecticut. And the the idea was that you could ship uh, your um, the Indian children up there to be educated. This was very different. This I know sounds a lot like uh, a lot like the uh, colonial and the mission schools. That would become very controversial later on, and uh, I know a lot of this happened at this time. Uh, this board or this school uh, apparently was much better at maintaining the original cultural heritage of the children while, uh, say, learning Virgil. Um, Elias uh, Cornelius, an agent of the board, uh, made visits to the Cherokee and enrolled a bunch of Cherokee children, and that included uh, Galingia. I believe that I am saying that right, and he would later be called uh, David Wadi. And Wadi will be a name that becomes very uh, relevant when we get to the Civil War. Back uh, at Ridge's house, uh, John Ridge had not originally enrolled in the school, um, but he had not found a suitable school in the meantime. 
Uh, and then, unfortunately, Strachey would hit that family when Nancy Ridge, uh, Ridge's daughter, if you remember, actually died in childbirth. After this, John Ridge and John Van, who is James Van's son, if you remember Van from a couple episodes ago, uh, would enroll in the in the foreign mission school and depart for Cornwall, Connecticut. John, uh, having cash because his father, Major Ridge, was a very wealthy man, but John proving that his his uh, his judgment was maybe questionable. Spent all his money on a watch on the way because he wanted to uh, he wanted to he wanted to be more like an American gentleman and own a pocket watch. And after being rebuked for obviously spending all his money, he would react in the very normal way of writing a poem about his pocket watch, which I thought was hilarious. Simultaneously, at this point, with the further debates going on in Washington D.C., the biggest of these debates, aside from how the hell is the United States government going to move the Cherokee to the west of the Mississippi, was the question of uh, citizenship. The citizenship question at this point is paradoxical because originally Cherokees were were denied citizenship on the basis that they were not Christians. And then, after many Cherokees became Christians, they were denied citizenship basically on the basis because they were not white. General Jackson would propose a treaty that would make the Cherokee citizens but this was illusory as this was really a, uh, the real goal of this treaty would be the trade of citizenship for resettling the Cherokee on the west of the Mississippi. Uh, the weird, this weird contradiction was pointed out by no less than Sam Houston, the famous Texas revolutionary, who was working, on a, working as a federal agent. He was tasked with, the, uh, with encouraging the immigration to the west of the Cherokee. And in that vein, uh, in 1819, a delegate... Uh, delegation went to Washington to discuss immigration and removal, but Ridge, uh, maybe in protest, was not among them. But John Ross and, made, and most other major Cherokee political leaders attended, and the Cherokee sought to preserve a permanent home in the West and the East uh, for the Cherokee that sought to stay, as immigration was not very popular amongst the Cherokee who were already you know, in Tennessee and Georgia So an agreement came where Cherokee would seed land in North Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, Uh, and the idea was that this would preserve a home in the east, and those uh, Cherokee could either stay in the east uh, in the Cherokee lands or go west. Principal Chief Pathkiller, there was a principal chief at this time, even though we've been focusing on Hicks and Major Ridge and John Ross, but none of them were principal chiefs, so Principal Chief Pathkiller thought that this was a great idea. And this uh, being, I think that the most important, for our purposes, the most important thing about this agreement was not actually the agreement itself, is that this was the first major agreement negotiated by John Ross. So it was after this treaty that John Ross would actually become, would not only become politically famous, but set in motion his becoming one of the most uh, consequential Cherokee of this age. Sorry about that feedback coming from the microphone. I really don't know where that came from. But back to Cornwall, Connecticut at the Foreign Mission School, John Ridge was enrolled and attended class, but he became constantly sick while in Connecticut. Major Ridge would actually make the the trip up to Cornwall, and he would come in the most splendid carriage ever to enter the town. And they would call him the Prince of the Forest, and he also arrived in a uh, unite the uh, a uniform of a United States uh, military officer, so he was immediately the talk of the town. At this time, 
John, in his sickness, would develop a relationship with a woman named Sally Northrup. John told Sally's mother, who was amused, uh, about his about his love for her daughter until uh, she asked Sally if she loved John, and or she asked Sally if she did love John Ridge, and Sally responded that she did in fact love John Ridge. Sally's mother responded by sending Sally to her grandparents' house to introduce her to uh, young suitable white men, but Sally remained obstinate that she loved John Ridge. When Susanna Ridge got word of this, she was also upset because she was uh, a little bit weary of her son becoming engaged to a white woman from uh, Connecticut. Uh, also, it would make uh, for political reasons, it was seen if John was marrying a white woman, it would make it harder for him to lead uh, Cherokee men. But eventually the two sides would relent and John and Sally would get married and Sally Northrup would become Sally Ridge. At the same time, the American Board of Missionaries would open up more schools, uh, but they would open them in Indian country, but they were still in same distances as uh, at same same distances away from the communities, as obviously travel in the early 1800s is very difficult. Uh, by most of the schools by October 1821, so we are several years ahead of 1817. Uh, there were less than 50 students actually staying at these schools. Um, but for the students who were there, the American board paid their room and board, and they generally reported, the board reported good things about the Cherokee students, uh, specifically that the Cherokee students were very quick to adopt Western culture and Western manners and styles and ways of doing things, which has been kind of an ongoing theme of why the United States government and, um, you know, American cultural ambassadors preferred the Cherokee because the Cherokee were the most willing to adopt uh, Western manners of living. Um, problems arose when they tried to teach the Cherokee children again that slavery was wrong because the concept of slavery was alien. Uh, well, the concept of manumission was really alien to uh, the Cherokee way of life because in the Cherokee language, the word for slave uh, didn't really exist because it was the same word for cattle or uh, you know chattel or just ownership over a thing. There was no there was no difference. So I guess in the in the Cherokee lexicon, discussing freeing slaves would be like freeing uh, freeing your livestock. Uh, simultaneously, political strife was breaking out uh, because the state of Georgia had sold its Western claims, uh, think Alabama, to the U.S. government in exchange for an agreement that the U.S. government would buy up all the Indian lands and resettle all the Indians in the West. As we will see, this doesn't help the Cherokee's relationship with the state of Georgia very much. But this was threatening because the largest and most wealthy of the Cherokee plantations we're all boarded with Georgia. And we will come back to that later. And now we are going to go back to John Ridge and Major Ridge. Uh, John and his wife would soon return to Cherokee country. And this is when John really began to rise in the Cherokee political scene. And that's going to be a topic of the next couple of major episodes, uh, really the political rise of John Ridge. Uh, but I think that this being kind of a gap filler episode between the time of 1812 and the rise of John Ridge, I think that we've really covered what we need to cover. And so that's going to be the end of the episode for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to end the 2006 OU football team. And then we will come back to this in two weeks. So that's the plan for uh, returning to the Trail of Tears. But I really hope you do come back for that uh for next week, that game about or that episode about the Fiesta Bowl, because the Fiesta Bowl in 2007 is constantly ranked as one of the top three 
uh, college football games of all time. It was heartbreaking for the Oklahoma Sooners. This was back in the days where you actually had expectations for the OU football team. Uh, now in November of 2022, uh, we are just happy if we can just get uh, 11 guys on the field. But anyway, I really hope you come back for that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And again, uh, I know that the weather is about to get really rough in Oklahoma. and it It's probably going to get rough wherever else you're listening from. So I hope everybody stays safe and hunkers down and is warm. And with that, this is the America of America podcast, and I'm Will Milam. And thank you so much for listening. to the uh, to the first episode of the America of America, a podcast about Oklahoma history and culture. I am your host, Will Milam, and I am currently recording from the podcast recording studio at the Underwood Law Library on the campus of Southern Methodist University in uh, University Park, Texas. Perhaps a peculiar place to be recording uh, a podcast episode about the history and culture of the state of Oklahoma, but uh, for reasons that will become apparent, I think that this is the perfectly appropriate place to be. So without further ado, let's get started with this introductory episode. Today, as a preliminary matter, I want to address and answer a couple questions that I hope will help you, the listener, and help me, the host, uh, determine where we're going with this podcast. First of all, what is this podcast? Uh, aside from, you know, just being a podcast about Oklahoma history and culture, what does, that, what does that mean exactly? The first question, what is Oklahoma? What does that mean exactly at a literal level and at a metaphysical level? What do people think of when they say the word Oklahoma? What do people think of when they say the word Oklahoman? The second question is, what does it mean to be Oklahoman? Is there such thing as Oklahoman culture? Is there anything really distinct about Oklahoman citizens or the people that were born in Oklahoma or the people that, you know, have spent time here? Is there, is there any kind of imparting quality that can, be, uh, that can be ascertained by saying, I am from Oklahoma or I am Oklahoman? And that naturally leads us to a second question, which is, Okay, it's perfectly fine to say that there is such thing as a, as a place called Oklahoma, or there can even be such thing as Oklahoman culture, but why does there need to be a podcast about it? Why, why, why does this particular podcast need to exist? And I think that there, there are three things that have happened to me in my life that have gone into, uh, that have gone into making me resolve that I should make some sort of podcast about the history and culture of Oklahoma. The first is a, a very early memory I have um, growing up in Oklahoma City and spending a lot of time in my father's law office, which was located on Francis Avenue right by Bishop McGinnis Catholic High School. And I remember in his office on a bulletin board, 
he had a photograph of a destroyed building, which I obviously walked by a lot when I was a kid. And it was it was very front and center. And I remember I remember not knowing what it was until I was about 12 years old. And I finally put the dots together that that was an aerial photograph of the aftermath of the Murrah building bombing from April 1995. And like all kids that grew up in Oklahoma, specifically kids that grew up in Oklahoma City, I don't have a a clear memory of when the first time I heard the name Timothy McVeigh or Terry Nichols or the Murrah building or the bombing. I, I don't remember the first time I remembered what it was. It took me uh, a long time to to understand fully what had happened since I hadn't been born when the murder building happened. But when I think back on that event now, I uh, I always think back to that photograph in my dad's office. And I also think back to um, footage of my mother. Uh, there's archival footage of my mother who was a who was a nurse at the time in downtown Oklahoma City uh, in the background um, in the hospital when they were taking patients, um, obviously, from that bombing in. And my mother was noticeably pregnant at the time. So I guess I can say that, that in a way, I, I was there. The uh, defining event that, now that I look back, that made me decide that this podcast was necessary came when I was... Uh, freshman in high school taking a speech class and was assigned to do a uh, narrative speech. And I, I don't remember how, but I remember coming across an article in Wikipedia called the, uh, the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, now primarily referred to as the Tulsa Race Massacre for, for appropriate and obvious reasons. And I, I remember being a 15-year-old kid who had lived in Oklahoma City all my life and was pretty interested in history, really. Um, you know, I, I read a lot and I watched a lot of documentaries. And I remember coming across this, uh, it was purely just a Wikipedia article, and it, it turned into a uh, into a deep rabbit hole dive of, you know, something that looked almost too, too horrible and gruesome to be true. And, you know, doing further research and learning that it was even worse than, uh, than it even looked on the surface. And just being kind of aghast at... Uh, at being able to go my entire life um, at that point without ever knowing that that event had happened or to the extent of, of destruction that, that, that it had wrought. And even more so, and I think that this is a very common experience amongst uh, Oklahoma natives, is that when you talk to older people um, and you, you kind of ask, you know, why, why did you never tell us about this or why, why was this never really talked about? And their response, which is a sincere and honest response, is no one ever talked to us about it. Um, members of my family who are who are way older than me, uh, I I had to tell them about that event. You know, it wasn't it wasn't by it wasn't by their uh, deliberate ignorance. It was just that no one ever told them about it, and it was it was a very clear um, indication that a lot of our state's history had just not been taught that. State history wasn't wasn't taught, or at the very least, wasn't taught well, or it wasn't taught comprehensively. So that obviously stayed with me for uh, for those next couple of years. And the last event um, that I think goes into uh, causing my resolve to record this podcast came when uh, I graduated from college. I, I attended. 
I attended the uh, the local school, the University of Oklahoma. And after I graduated there, I made the uh, the pilgrimage to the great city of Dallas, Texas, um, where I've been here for the last couple of years attending law school at SMU. And of course, uh, for all intents and purposes, the cultures between Oklahoma City and Dallas are fairly similar. Um, I think as similar as two cities in separate states can really be. But this event uh, filled me, made me realize how much of a homebody I was. I had lived my entire life up to that point, you know, in one place. I'd moved residences, but those were, you know, uh, 30, 30 minutes from each other max. And it was just moving from my parents' house to a dorm, basically. And uh, I knew I was a homebody, and I, but I didn't realize how much of one I was until, you know, I moved to Texas. And it made me really start thinking about how being from Oklahoma defined me, or being specifically being from Oklahoma, being born there and living my entire life there, in being shaped by the fact that that was the place I was from. Uh, when I was younger, I, I tried to uh, paint a more cosmopolitan version of myself. You know, if I, if I ever left the state or if I ever went anywhere, and I remember going to a conference in Chicago when I was in college and doing my best to mask uh, my accent. And I got away with it for about an hour until I casually said, y'all, Un, unironically and sincerely, and remember, I remember the the reaction of the uh, of the people um, that I was with was uh, immediately picked up that I was either from Oklahoma or Texas. But it was really when I when I moved to Dallas that I, I even though Dallas and Oklahoma City, like I said, are very similar, I, I really started to see how how they were different and how being from Oklahoma had a had a distinction or that. The way that my state was and the culture that we had was very distinct. And luckily, this was about at the time that uh, there came to be a slew of books written about Oklahoma City or generally Oklahoma history. I, I'm thinking of the craze about from about 2015 to maybe 2019 uh, with books like Boomtown by Sam Anderson, uh, books, um, the, I think uh, Mayor McCornette wrote The great Amer- the Next Great American City. Uh, recently, Russell Cobb came out with The Great Oklahoma Swindle, which is a very interesting uh, look at uh, cultural and religious history. And um, about a year ago, uh, Tolson 1921 came out um, by Randy Creeble, which is an excellent, excellent history of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And what these works did was, I think, did a good job of cataloging that there is a distinct Oklahoma culture. And sometimes it can be defined positively, and sometimes it's really defined negatively. Uh, I think Russell Cobb does a good job describing Oklahoma as the weirdest state in America, just in kind of a way that Sam Anderson does as his perspective being a you know, a New York Times Magazine writer uh, flying down to Oklahoma City in 2012 to watch an upstart basketball team in, in realizing the distinctiveness of the state and the distinctiveness of its people. So obviously, I, I'm thrilled that um, 
attention is is being paid to to our culture and our, our history uh the good and the bad obviously um russell cobb comes at us from a, I, I think a rightfully uh critical view but i think uh i i i'm not uh jumping on a bandwagon but i think that there is it is demonstrated that there is a market um for for this information for for talking about these topics i think i think that they've done a good job to to say that there is real history in this place there are real stories in this place and what i would like to do is i would like to expand into chrono, chronicle the history and the stories that that are worth telling on a more micro level um eventually i i want to talk about all these books whether it's uh whether it's the books I just mentioned or books like Funny Money by Mark Singer, which I think is an excellent little book that chronicles um, the end of the oil boom of the early 1980s. But especially on a more micro level, I think that there's there's lots of stories that should be told. Um, there are lots of personal experiences and great stories that you know don't, don't make it into history books, even though they, I think it's those uh, individual experiences that make up that that greater grand narrative of history, or if you're if you don't believe in grand narratives, that that great arc of history. And I think you know, just growing up, growing up in in Oklahoma, I, I've come across a lot of those stories. And I think that uh, what I can do by chronicling those stories and that history and that culture is to do justice and to write a love letter to my state. Um, I, I will do my best, I think, when examining um, our history to be as critical as I, as, I, as I can and I should be, but this is in an attempt as, as a homesickness project, but really to, to write a love letter to the place that I'm from, to write a love letter about into the place that shaped me, that the land that I grew up on, the people that I knew and loved, the, uh, the cultural institutions that I personally have inherited. And that brings us to the next question, which is, where is this podcast going? What what are going to be the contents of this podcast? I, I've I've given out some uh, some books I've read and I think are good, but obviously this isn't uh, this isn't a book review podcast. So what what are we going to be talking about? Well, history and culture, um, anywhere and everywhere. Uh, I I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I don't want to. Um, be stuck telling a chronological story. I, I want to go where the interest is. Um, historically, I I think that uh, I want to talk about Indian removal um, as a member of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, you know, who can date, where I can date my roots back to my ancestors in Georgia, who ended up in Oklahoma in the 1800s. There there are stories there. Things like the land run, obviously, of 1889, one of the most famous events in Oklahoma history. Um, with the the original narratives and the more uh, the more revisionist narratives, things like the the Tulsa oil boom of the early 20th century. That uh, within that is the Tulsa race massacre and the economic and social consequences of that. Things like the Dust Bowl also in the early 20th century, which is where we get the term Oki, uh, the derogatory term for the Oklahomans that fled that fled the state west to California. And obviously, um, individual figures, um, Will Rogers, who I have a very important cl- uh, personal connection to, uh, folks like J.B. Milam and the reorganization of the Cherokee Nation, uh, folks like Reba McIntyre, the, the people that have made Oklahoma history. 
And also smaller stories, stories that obviously everything I just talked about is has been documented and, you know, is largely going to just be, you know, the results of my research. But uh, stories like the, uh, the, the Red River Bridge War, which, you know, obviously is, is uh, important to me because uh, being in Texas right now, I, I drive over that bridge every time I come to and fro home. Uh, the story of Blessed Stanley Rother in his ministry uh, in Central America and his death and being uh, one of, if not, I'm, I, he might be the first uh, uh, native-born Oklahoman to be fied by the Catholic Church, which is uh, uh, really, I, I think, an, uh, an incredible story. And I remember growing up at the, uh, at the cathedral and seeing his, uh, his plaque on the side, but never really knowing the details of that story until recently. And there's also matters of Oklahoma culture that I, I think um, we we share between us. I think are, it's important to talk about their history and it's important to talk about their implications and what they mean to us. Uh, football, obviously, is massive. Professional basketball is massive. Uh, Oklahoma music, either the country music or the, the protest songs of Woody Guthrie. The politics of Oklahoma, the, uh, as Russell Cobb, I think, does a good job of documenting the, the rise of socialism in the in the early 20th century, leading to now Oklahoma being one of the most surefire Republican states in the country. Uh, talk about Oklahoma religion, um, whether it's the whether it's the Protestantism, uh, whether it's the the conversion of the Cherokees to Methodism, or whether it's uh, like I just said the the story of uh, Blessed Stanley Rother and the Catholic Church. All of these things have their place, and it's impossible to really understand the history without understanding these these cultural these these cultural aspects, these these cultural facts. And with that being said, I would like now to establish what are the goals of this podcast. Where do I see this podcast going? The simplest and most important goal to me, uh, and if if I achieve this and nothing else, this will absolutely be a success, is to reach people who care about the subject to join and facilitate a conversation about um, our state or uh, to start a conversation with people that have interest about the state of Oklahoma who might not be from Oklahoma, who might, not, who might have moved out or might, you know, have never have gone, have never stepped foot in the state or ever heard about it. Um, if, I, if I can reach, you know, uh, just a couple of people who, who have interest in who this forum can be useful for, I, I would consider that a great success. I have no sponsors. I have no Patreon. I, I, I have no plans to make this a job. I have no plans to, to make money off of it. This is, this is purely a passion project. And what's more than that, I, I have no expertise. I, I don't have a degree in history. I don't have a degree in English. I don't have a degree in politics or political science. Uh, I, I have no formal history or, excuse me, formal education that I think would really help me here. I'm literally just one guy, uh, one law student, you know, sitting here in Dallas, just recording in his free time, you know, to talk about something that he's passionate about. And because this isn't a professional podcast and uh, because this, you know, isn't a professional operation, I'm afforded other opportunities because a lot of the events, the historical events that uh, I'm going to be covering on this episode or excuse me, on this podcast are within living memory. I should be able to bring on um, hopefully people to talk about it with that, that you know, remember these things, uh, whether that be the oil crash in the 80s or whether that be uh, the murder building bombing. I, I'm excited to, well, uh, excited is not the right word, especially considering how traumatic a lot of these events were, but I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to, to talk about these things, you know, from a personal experience for a lot of people. 
And the final goal, of course, because this is a passion project, is to learn more about myself, to, to learn more about uh, a place and a state and a culture that has raised me that I'm very much a part of. Uh, it's, a, it's a way to um, overcome a bit of homesickness, as I said. It's a, it really is a way to, to write a love letter uh, to my nurturing mother, to, to my home, but to write a love letter to a real thing. And when I say writing a love letter to a real thing, I have to accept uh, Oklahoma and all of its beauty and all of its all of its terror and all of its uh, and all of its flaws. And I hope that this project will give you and I a chance to uh, to examine that in a whole new light, to examine it in a level of uh, of scrutiny and a level of appreciation that is uh, heretofore unknown. So if that sounds interesting to you, then uh, join us next week for beginning with the state poem of Oklahoma, which is called Howdy Folks. And hopefully we can talk about its cultural implications. It's, uh, it's, we can talk about its history, its cultural implications, especially its, uh, its character and who is dedicated to, who is the, the great native Oklahoma son, Will Rogers. So I'm excited to start this journey. I'm excited for y'all to be along. And uh, until then, I'm Will Milam. Thanks.